In our study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians this week, we come to an incredibly familiar passage, one of the most beloved uh, passages of Scripture in the entirety of the Bible, and there are always two twin errors that we need to avoid when we come to a familiar passage. Uh, we can, uh, in looking at, uh, at something so well-known, either uh, kill this passage through turning it into a project for dissection, uh, or we can assume that we already know an awful lot about it, and so don't really uh, dig very deep at all. And we need to find, in a sense, that happy medium and see where the Lord would be speaking to us today. So uh, my prayer is that we'll be able to do that with the Lord's help as we look at this way of love, this more excellent way that Paul speaks of. 1 Corinthians, at the end of chapter 12, verse 31, and reading through to the end of chapter 13. You can find that beginning on page 959 in our cart Bibles, if you picked one up. Uh, and we will begin, as I said, at the end of chapter 12, looking at the way of love. Now, we, before we go to this passage and before we go to God's Word, let us go before His throne of grace again in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank You for the gift of Your Word and for the gift of Your Spirit. Your Word, which is living and active, and Your Spirit, who softens our hearts, so that Your living and active Word may open us and lay us bare before You. We pray, O Lord, that You would make us not only hearers of Your Word today, but as we look and think and contemplate love, love in Your body, love poured out by Your Spirit, love returning to You and to one another because of the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. O Lord, keep us from being hearers only. But makers, make us doers of your word as well. To love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. We ask these things in your name and for the sake of your glory. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 through the end of chapter 13. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. That sends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. I trust that most of us in this room have learned the lesson of being skeptical of simplistic solutions to complex problems. It's one of the marks of maturity in the world, one of the ways that we go out into the world and and we keep ourselves from being drawn in, in by those hucksters who promise great returns over a small investment. We know the way things work. If you've got a complex problem, it's normally going to take many complex solutions working together to resolve it. You know how these things work. And so when someone comes to you and promises that you can have financial stability simply by refinancing, you say, well, that sounds a little too good to be true. You can get rich quick overnight with one surefire investment. You're skeptical. If someone says you can lose an awful lot of weight by eating nothing but cabbage soup for a month, that doesn't sound very appetizing at all, even if it works and seems a little too simplistic. Even our relationships, one with another, here's a thorny issue and a sticky uh, a, a way to a, a sticky solution, or I'm sorry, a sticky situation uh, that we have to work through. And we know that uh, that not every relationship can be bound together by the same answers. You can't gift your way into everyone's graces. You can't simply listen through problems that require more than talking. Sometimes we need a complex solution to these things. We know how things work. So if you're tracking so far with 1 Corinthians, you might be caught off guard by the way that Paul seems to offer one simple solution, or at least one single solution, to all the problems that have been plaguing the church up through these last 12 chapters. It is indeed what he's doing. You know, sometimes we think of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 as this detached sort of idealistic poem of love just floating about in this sea of doctrine and reproof. Though it doesn't, doesn't hold in to everything else that Paul is saying here. At least, uh, at least we treat it that way, don't we? We uh, pull it out of its context and we drop it into every Christian marriage you've been at as though it were custom-tailored for that purpose. That's not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not bah humbugging the idea of reading 1 Corinthians 13 in a wedding. Uh, true love is true love, no matter it's, if it's uh, in the church or in the home life. But we, we need to make sure that we're not so enamored with the majesty of this text that we forget what it's doing here in this context, in this letter full of all of these problems and all of Paul's reproof for these people. This chapter is very much attached to the rest of his letter. It's very much the, the climactic point of almost everything that has come before it. It's certainly the climax of this main section that we're looking at now, the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church. There's a sense in which all of chapter 14 is denouement. Look at the beginning of chapter 14. He begins by saying, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He's going to talk about prophecy and about tongues and and about which one is more important and more useful in the church, but he can't get there without saying first, you need to pursue love. This is the main point that I want you to see. And also, there's a sense in which he's been moving this direction explicitly since at least the beginning of chapter 8. He was talking about the problem of food offered to idols there, and 
And he brings it back to knowledge and to love. Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so you see the way that he's moving in the direction of love, even in that section. And and a case could be made, and hopefully we'll make it in a little while longer, that he's been moving this direction since the very beginning. You remember the first congratulation that Paul had for the Corinthian church. He praised the Lord that, uh, that they had been blessed with every spiritual gift. They were not lacking in any spiritual gift by the grace of the Spirit who was filling them as they waited upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in just a few verses after that congratulation and that hymn of praise, he has to rebuke them. Despite their gifting, they are full of prideful disagreement. And the answer is love, which would bind them together in unity. There's a sense in which almost all of the letter has been pointing in this direction. The sense in which he holds before the Corinthian church, and brothers and sisters, he holds before you today, this remedy of love for those ills that plague us in the church. It's not a simplistic answer. It's not a quick fix, but it is the right answer. It is exactly what we need as we deal with how to love one another in the church, how to be a congregation pursuing love and unity and encouragement together in the gospel. It's exactly the answer we need as we consider how can we put down that selfish pride which would tempt us to look down our noses at the other people sitting in this room. It's exactly the answer we need if we consider how we can care for one another in sincerity, not just in pretense. How do we do those things? Well, we pursue love. We pursue love. That's what the Lord wants for his people in these verses. Wants us to pursue love as the highest and the greatest expression of spirit-empowered Christianity that could ever be seen. And for you to see that and to know that it is the highest and the greatest expression of Christian spirituality, Paul lays out a few arguments He lays before us the excellencies of love to convince us that this is indeed the more excellent way that he's talking about. His arguments, I think, are threefold, and they're broken down pretty easily in the way that the ESV divides these paragraphs. He's going to show us first the substance of love, going to show us second the character of love, and finally the permanence of love. The substance of love, the character of love, and the permanence of love. Let's consider that first one. Paul wants to show us the substance of love. Now, when I say that he's showing us love in the sense of a substance, I don't mean that it is uh, this thing, this measurable uh, item that you can add or remove, a component in the piece of something else. There are at least some people that think of love in that way. I don't know if any of you saw, but this week, West Concord made national news as my favorite bakery just down the road, Neshoba Brook, last month, received a warning letter from the FDA. The warning came because on their bags of Neshoba granola in their ingredients list, perhaps in a cheeky way, they said that their granola is made with love. It was all over the news. I don't don't know if you saw it, it, but it's there. You can still find it today, probably, online. And here is an excerpt from the FDA warning letter. Love is not a common or usual name of an ingredient. It's considered to be an intervening material. Now, maybe 
we think the FDA just doesn't have a sense of humor. But they are right, aren't they? Love isn't a substance. It's not a component that we add or subtract. So uh, Paul's point is not saying, well, if you're going to be a good Christian, take all the things you're already doing and, and add a pinch or a dash or maybe even a cup full of love, and then you'll get it right. I don't know. Love isn't a substance like that. Rather, love is what gives substance to everything else we do in the body of Christ. Love is that grace the Holy Spirit works into us that gives reality to our spiritualities. It binds everything together and makes it what it ought to be. Or we could say it negatively in the way that Paul seems to say it in this passage. That apart from love, without love, all of our gifts are empty and useless. That's what he says in verses 1 through 3, in a matter of speaking, he has this wonderful list, this great list of, of the best examples of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifting to the nth degree. And each one, in turn, is foiled by the same small phrase, but if I have not love. You see, without love, there is no substance to our spirituality. There is no reality to the claims that we make of being spirit-filled people. If there's no love in our hearts, all of our displays of spiritual activity are mere formalism and fluff. He says you could have tongues to the highest degree. You could be eloquent and fluent in all the languages of the world. You could take it a step higher. You could speak in the language of angels. And yet if you don't have love, it's simply noise. You can have all prophecy, not prophecy that sees in bits and bites and tiny little pieces, but prophecy that knows everything there is to know. All revelation the Lord decides to reveal. All mysteries and all knowledge. And even if you had these things, well, what if you had faith? Faith that was so strong that mountains trembled at the thought of your prayers. Miracles seemed to follow you around everywhere you went. You could have these things, but if you have not love, you're merely deceiving yourself. You could give away all that you have. Give up your body, give up your possessions, feed the poor, clothe those who are naked, give to those who have nothing out of the generosity of your heart. But the sad reality is there's a way to do all those things without actually doing them in love. And if that's the case, then you're really no better off, are you? Spirituality without love is like music without a melody. It's like a brick house with no mortar to bind it together. It's like a freight train without a locomotive at the beginning. It simply doesn't measure up to what it ought to be. Without love, our gifts are empty and useless. I know you can read those words. That's pretty simple to understand and to grasp what he's telling us here. But I wonder if you really believe them. That's the first obstacle to applying this. Because like the Corinthians, we tend to judge and value spiritual things according to outward evidences, according to our activities and our abilities, according to effort and attention to spiritual practices. But the Lord measures our spirituality in another way. He measures it according to our heart. And that means that the question of our spiritual lives is not, have you been doing enough? Are you impressive enough? Are you important enough in the church? Rather, the question is, is your heart full of the love of the Lord? That is where our love comes from, by the way. 
When we're speaking of real, true, biblical love, we're not talking about something that we have the power to manufacture in ourselves. It doesn't come from us. It is not something, as I said, that we add to whatever else we might be doing. Rather, it is the love the Lord supplies. It is something of His making and a gift of His Spirit in the lives of His people. We find that clearly enough in 1 John chapter 4. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is a reality to love. There is a beginning point. It is God's love for His people to send His Son. And then there's also a way that love gets worked into us, isn't there? We hear this in Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There is a source for the love in the Christian life. Love is the substance of our spirituality because love is, in essence, the substance of the gospel. And that means that if your heart has not been changed by God's love, if your heart has not been changed by the love that is manifested in the sacrificial death of the Son of God, if your heart has not been filled by the love that is poured in by the Spirit of God, if you have not been changed by the love of God, then you have not been changed at all. And any claims to spiritual significance that come from an unchanged heart, it's a mere delusion, isn't it? I hope you understand the, uh, the priority that God's Word is giving to us here. Let me speak to the parents for a moment and, and trust that the rest of you can apply it in the same way to your own lives. Parents, there are any number of things that you need to teach your children. Before they leave your house, before they go off into the world, you need to teach them the doctrines of our religion. You need to teach them to believe God's word. You need to teach them to treat others with respect. You need to teach them to discern truth from error. You need to provide for them a whole mass of information that needs to be put into their heads, to be put into order and into work as they go out into the world. But above all, teach your children what it is to love the Lord. Not just to have a mind full of doctrine, but a heart full of God's truth. Show your children the Savior who is so lovely that He is worthy of all of the effort that you can give. And more than you can give, because all you can give is not enough. Show them the Savior who is worth all the love that He can pour into your heart. Show them the love of the Father, and the love of God and His church that is so great that open repentance to one another is a blessing rather than a hardship. Labor to teach your children what it is to love the Lord. And brothers and sisters, for the rest of you, we need to be committed to the same, don't we? To pursuing love. None of these other things that you need in life are bad things. They're good, and in fact, they're necessary. But Paul's telling us that without love, they're mere noise and self-deception and emptiness. Pursue love, brothers and sisters. Pursue the the essence, the, uh, the, what was my word, <laughs> the substance of our spirituality. Secondly, he wants to put before us the character of love. And this is the one, the, uh, the paragraph that we think about when we think of this chapter, this long list of all of the characteristics that Paul lays before us. And there are a few things that jump out at us immediately as we look at this list. The first one is that this list is at least concerned to show us what love is not 
as it is concerned to show us what love is. There are 15 different elements in this list here, 15 different items, and eight of them are negative. This list wants to show us what love is not, at least as much as it wants to show us what love is. And in doing that, in giving this negative list, part of what Paul is doing is exposing the Corinthian church in their lovelessness toward one another. We don't have to contrive this list and try to turn it into something that it's not. We can easily see the language that he's using, and we could go through and connect it to many of the things that are going on in the church that we've seen earlier. What does he say? Well, love does not envy or boast. Remember, there are those boastful divisions that began the letter. And some are saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Paulus, and I follow Cephas. And Paul corrects them, but he comes back at the end of chapter 1, and here's how he summarizes, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And now he comes back and he says, here's what love does not do. It does not boast. It is not envious. He says that love is not arrogant. Well, there is Paul's catchphrase, isn't it? We know it elsewhere as puffed up. That overinflated sense of self-importance that leads us to seek our own desires rather than giving and serving those the Lord has put in relationship with us. It's arrogance. It's being puffed up. And we see this all over the letter in chapter 4 and in, uh, again in chapter 6. He says that love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. I like the New International Version's translation of that resentful there. Perhaps you know it uh, by its better phrase, its better term. Love keeps no record of wrong. It means that love is not concerned to keep a score sheet and, and a tally. It doesn't nurse grudges to make sure that it has the upper hand and that others are, are kept in place and where they ought to be under our heel. And what a stinging indictment in a church where one believer was taking another believer to the courts. Here's what he said in, the, in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. But love keeps no record of wrongs. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Chapter 5, it's actually reported there's a sexual immorality among you and that of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For man has a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Rejoicing in wrongdoing, that perhaps you're getting away with something. That's not love, says Paul. And we could go on and on and on the way that believers are treating one another at the Lord's table. The way believers who are stronger in their faith are running roughshod over believers who are weaker in their faith and not quite as able to stand up against the temptations of the pagan culture. We can go on and on to talk about the way that husbands and wives even treat one another in the privacy of their own homes. But over and over again, it seems that Paul is exposing this loveless church. And you can imagine the red-faced embarrassment the first time this letter arrived in Corinth and everyone gathered around and they said, there's a letter from Paul and I heard there's this majestic poem somewhere around chapter 13. And then it's read and they all look at one another and they are exposed in their lovelessness. They're exposed because they have been turning inward on themselves and not outward toward one another. You can ask those who know about such things. I'm not 
uh, an expert uh, in matters of dance, but apparently in ballet, one of the most important things you can work on, one of the most important skills is your turnout, otherwise known as the external rotation of the hips. I hear that, that all five uh, classical positions in ballet begin with the heels together and the toes splayed out at 180 degrees. And the goal is not to do that in a way that rolls the foot or contorts the leg, but rather to learn to open at the hip, external rotation. It's crucial if you want to be a ballet dancer. Well, if external rotation is crucial in dance, it is vital in the church. It is the difference between a church that is ruled by love and a church that has no love. A church that has no love turns inward on itself, whereas a love-fueled church turns outward looks for the good of the other. That's the common theme in those positive examples of love in this passage. Well, it's patient and it's kind. It's patient and kind toward those who are struggling. There's an object in these things. It isn't static patience just sitting there waiting for no reason. It's patience with someone else and kindness toward someone else. It, it goes outward. It's externally rotated love. Love rejoices when truth wins the day. Love is persistent in its desire to see and to cultivate and to hope for what is best in others. Love turns outward. It seeks the good of those outside itself. That's the character of love. The second thing that jumps out at us from this list is that it, it's almost a sense in which love is being personified. This passage is almost begging to have a face put to it. Which is why sometimes, I bet if you've been in uh, some services, the pastor preaching on this passage will apply this by saying, put your own name in here. And, and they'll have that embarrassing moment where they go through the congregation and they pick people out. Victor is patient. Mike is kind. And they'll go through and they'll, they'll embarrass all sorts of people sitting there and they'll run through the whole list because it's almost begging that this passage should be seen in the face of a person. It also explains the way that often we explain or we illustrate this kind of, of active, this active, visible love by talking of the stories of our Christian heroes. People like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot died January 8, 1956, two years and three months to the day after taking the hand of Elizabeth in marriage, leaving behind an infant daughter. He was killed by the people he went to share the gospel with, the Hurani people of Ecuador, a tribe buried in the midst of the jungle. He and few others went to share the gospel with them and were ultimately speared to death. Well, just about two years later, Elizabeth grabbed her daughter, still very young, and took a trek herself into the jungle to live with the Hurani people for two years. She was patient with them. She was kind with them. She rejoiced enough in the truth that she desired to share the gospel of Jesus with them. She hoped all things and believed all things and endured all things for the sake of loving others, even when I'm sure everything in her natural flesh was telling her to get out from there and hold a grudge and look out for number one. And that's love personified, isn't it? We very often look to our Christian heroes and Elizabeth Elliot 
and Amy Carmichael, John Newton, David Brainerd, the list goes on and on and on, and that's good. That's so helpful that we can read those Christian biographies and be inspired by the way that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of other saints. And we can see a picture of love that Paul is painting for us, written on the face and the life of someone else. But there is a subtle danger here, folks. The subtle danger is that when our Christian heroes become the standard of our love, we can be unprepared for the mundane requirement of loving one another in everyday circumstances. You hear a story about Elizabeth Elliot going into the jungles of Ecuador, and you recognize that that is love. You recognize that that is something above and beyond what you would probably be capable of. And should the Lord call upon you to do that sort of thing, you would immediately Shower yourself with prayer. Go before the Lord. Oh, Lord, I need you to fill me with love. I cannot do this thing apart from you. It's immediately recognizable, but what about those little annoyances in the church? What about those peccadilloes that go between members of the same congregation, those tiny annoyances? They're not out of the ordinary. They're not things that that throw us for a loop. It's not like going and, and sharing the gospel with the person who has slain our husband. And so they fly under the radar, don't they? We don't recognize that this too, interacting with one another on a daily or even just a weekly basis, is an opportunity to show forth selfless, Christ-like love. But that's what they are. That's what we're called to. Later, in chapter 16, here's how Paul is going to end, uh, close to the end of this letter. He's going to say, let all you do be done in love. That's what we need in the church. Not just love that, that reaches to the heights, but love that embraces the ones who are closest to us. And so while it might be helpful to see this love personified in our Christian heroes, it's, it's much more helpful to see this love in the face of our Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who loves you in the face of all of your daily annoyances and shortcomings. The Savior who died to erase the record of wrongs that stood against you. The Savior who loves you so much that he refuses to rejoice in your wrongdoing, even when it might feel good to you in the moment. The Savior who would not seek his own, but instead willingly laid down his life for his sheep. If you want love personified, look to Jesus. He's the one whose love perseveres, who is patient and kind. Look to Jesus and pray that by his grace he would work the character of love that he embodies into your heart and into his church. So there we have the substance of love. We've seen the character of love. And finally, Paul puts before us the permanence of love. In verses 8 through 13, in closing this passage, Paul's calling us, in a sense, to reevaluate those things uh, that we think are spiritually significant. Certainly what he was calling uh, the believers in Corinth to do, and he does it by laying out a contrast. You can value those things that are spiritual according to what appears outwardly impressive, or you can value spiritual things according to what endures beyond this temporary life. Value those things that look important or value those things that will last. That was the choice for the Corinthians. What did they value? What did they think was important in the church? Well, it was spiritual manifestations. 
as a showing of power, maybe in, in tongues or prophecy or in knowledge. Maybe it was in miraculous gifts, whatever it was, but the things that they ought to be valuing above all else was love. That's where they ought to be putting their emphasis, where they ought to be investing all of their spiritual capital. Not just because it might be the answer to all of their interpersonal questions. Not just because it had the ability to make them more, look more and more like their Savior, but they ought to invest in love because love is the thing that will last. It has a staying power that all the other manifestations of the Spirit were never meant to have. As we find in these last verses, that all of the other gifts, the manifestations of the Spirit for the church in this life are built with a planned obsolescence. They are meant to pass away. They're temporary. They're helps for a time. They're, they're like crutches for the church as she hobbles through the infirmities of this life. That doesn't mean that they're bad things. It doesn't mean that prophecy and knowledge and, and all the gifts of the Spirit it doesn't mean that they're, they're bad things that keep us in our weakness. Rather, they help us in the reality of our weakness to move forward as the Lord moves in His church. None of these gifts are bad. They're blessings of the Lord, but they're given to address problems that will no longer exist when the church has outgrown the adolescence of time and sin. They address problems that will no longer exist when the bride is presented in perfect spotlessness to her bridegroom. So all the gifts that Paul mentions here, all the ones that he doesn't mention here, they're all going to be swallowed up by the perfection of God's presence. Every one of them. All the puzzling revelation of tongues and prophecy. All the partial knowledge of, of man's limited intellect. All the well-intentioned misfires and all the sermons that have been preached before all the gathered church throughout all the ages. All those memorized scriptures that made it only into your head and never into your heart. All those kind words that just couldn't quite scratch the itch of the brother or sister going through a difficult time in their life. All of it will be swallowed up by sanctified memory when we stand before the Lord. When faith gives way to sight and hope is fulfilled in the sight of the Savior. There will be no more need for these crutches when the body is healed in the presence of her God. Not everything's going to be abolished though, friends. We'll still have knowledge. We'll still know who the Lord is. We'll still rejoice in His work. In fact, that, that knowledge will be of a better sort. We won't see dimly in a mirror, as he says here, but then face to face. We'll have knowledge of the Savior in, in perfect clarity of what He has saved us from. We'll have perfect knowledge of the price that He paid to deliver us from our sins. We'll still have knowledge, and we will still have love. We'll still have love for Christ, pure and holy, without a tinge of mistrust. We'll still have love for one another, fellow saints, without a shadow of jealousy. We'll have love increasing and ever-widening as the eons stretch into infinite horizons. Love growing and increasing evermore for eternity. That's what we'll have in His presence. And so here's the contrast Paul's making. He hides it all in this little phrase in verse 8. Love never ends. So the question is, what will you value? Will your heart race when somebody thinks that you're spiritually significant or knowledgeable? Or you've got your act together? 
we value those things that the Holy Spirit is working in you that might be unseen among the larger body of the church. Your love for that person who sits close by you, who doesn't seem to talk to much of anyone else. Does it show up in the way that you love brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for them even though they might not know you or might not know that you're praying for them? What will you value in the church? You know, in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, there is a statue. It's a small replica uh, of the Lincoln Memorial, the Lincoln Monument, I, I suppose it is, and it's cast in bronze. Next to this statue, there is a sign encouraging all the patrons who visit the MFA to touch the statue. And so most of this statue is showing the patina of age, except for the knees and the shoes and the hands, where visitors go by and they rub their hands on Lincoln's knee. You see, it turns out that, uh, that a lot of people who go to museums and see these wonderful sculptures really wonder what bronze feels like. But the curators know that, that soiled hands, fumbling fingers can do a lot of damage to a real work of art. And so they encourage everyone who visits to get it all out with Lincoln. Touch him now before you see all the rest. Get it out of your system. There's a sense in which when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, it seems so high and mighty that we feel like greasy-fingered children in an art exhibit. Maybe the best thing to do is just to admire it from a distance. Set up ropes and barriers. Things to keep us away from, from what the Lord is showing us here. But this passage doesn't really work unless we wrap our hands around it. What the Lord wants for his people today. Not just to admire this passage, not just to go away and say, oh, love is patient and kind and what a wonderful, splendid thing it is. But to say, Lord, how can I get my hands on this? How can you get your hands on me? My prayers is that, will you, is that is what you will do with this passage today. Not just admire it, but wrestle with it. Pray through it. Say, Lord, reveal to me where my love has fallen short. Reveal to me where your love has covered over those things that I have fallen short in. And show me the way that you are calling me to love in your name for the sake of your church. Here's what the Lord wants for his people as we come away from 1 Corinthians 13. He wants us to pursue love together. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for this word you have given us. We thank you for love, which is something that comes from you, in purity and holiness, and something that by your grace you allow us to work out in our lives by your empowering of us. So help us, O oh Lord, to be so bound up in your love that it flows out and oozes out of every pore, that it shows up and is visible, just as we can see it in the faces and the lives of others that we admire, just as we see it in the face and the life and the ministry of Christ our Savior, who emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, and stooped low to redeem his people to himself. Help us, O oh Lord, to work in that love as you work it into us. Help us to pursue love together, we pray in your name. Amen.